Let's go ahead and pray and just ask God to focus our hearts, huh? Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for this night. Uh, God, we just thank you for what you're doing around the world. Lord, it's amazing to find out the way your gospel is spreading, how you're using your people in various places to do various deeds for your name. And we just praise you, God, you are amazing. Knowing that, Lord, on that day when we enter into that into heaven with you, we truly will see people from all the nations. God, you're an awesome God. So we do pray now you'd open up your word to us, help us have understanding. And Lord, more than anything, help us to apply it so that we can go and do it. We thank you, Lord Jesus, in your name, amen. Well, we're continuing on in Revelation chapter 21. We're almost done with the book of Revelation. And you know, I want to tell you, heaven is for real, not because I read a book, but because I read the good book, the Bible, because the Bible tells me so. Uh, and that's why I know it to be true. And so we're, we're going to be continuing on in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 9 tonight as we go through. We're, we're uh, just, for those of you who haven't been with us and those of you who have and need a reminder, we're at the very end. We're at the eternal state. So we've gone through all the judgments of the tribulation period. And then we've, we've gone through the return of Christ and the establishment of his millennial thousand year reign here on earth. And now we, we've, we've seen the judgment of the dead where death and Hades gave up their dead and they were judged and, and everything was thrown into the lake of fire. And now we're at this eternal state where there's a new heavens and a new earth. That everything is created new. And last week, that's what we talked about at the beginning of chapter 21. This week, we're going to focus on this wonderful city, the New Jerusalem. And it's unique. And here's what I want to say before we start reading this. In 1 Corinthians 2.9, the Apostle Paul writes, well, he actually quotes, But as it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Amen to that. We, we just can't even imagine, even fathom the things God has in store for us, those who love the Lord. And, and as we read these chapters, it's kind of hard to imagine this or to see it, but John paints, paints a good picture, and I think it leaves us with enough of a picture for us to wonder about how wonderful heaven will be. It, it gives us enough of a picture to imagine and think on God and think about our our home. Not, not this, this place where we're transient, passing through, but truly where our citizenship belongs, and that is with the Lord, the new heavens and the new earth. Last week, we pointed out that it's physical. It's not just a, a spiritual thing. You're not just walking around on a cloud. It's different. It's not the same as, as this earth or this heaven. Things are going to be very different. To what extent, we won't fully know, but we do know it'll be different. And, and we do have a picture of the eternal state in Jesus Christ's resurrected body. And then, of course, in what John writes here in the book of Revelation. And there's a few other passages throughout the scriptures too. So let's go ahead and read, starting at verse 9 of chapter 21. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, 
like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Now, let me just pause for a minute there. As we're reading this, are you imagining it? You should be. Keep thinking about it as we go further. Verse 15. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its walls, 144 cubits, by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third a gate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth uh, chrysophras, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of a sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gate will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter into it, nor anyone who does does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word as we consider this and learn from it. Wow. That when we think about jewels, you know, my first encounter with a jewel was really, it was buying my wife's uh, engagement ring. I was, you know, I didn't know anything about, about jewels or jewelry. And the, the first time I ever bought a jewel was really with uh, buying my wife's engagement ring. And, and uh, I, it was pretty expensive. I, it, I actually, actually, I didn't even have all the money. I, I borrowed some of the money and paid it off and so on and, and saved up the money to get all this, 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 this wonderful ring. It was, I think I spent a total of almost $1,000 on it. And, uh, and, uh, I remember, uh, being like, okay, I got this ring and I didn't know anything about diamonds, by the way, uh, I'm sorry. Can we open up those back doors, please? Um, and, uh, sorry, the AC is broken. So I apologize for that. They weren't supposed to break it yet, but they broke it. Um, <clears throat> so this week it's getting re- replaced. But uh, so I got this little ring and I'm, I'm so excited and, and I'm really bad about keeping a secret for a long period of time. I'm just like, when I have a good announcement to make, I just want to announce, but I was so good with my wife. I, she had no idea. In fact, one of the things I had to do was replace one of the stones with a, another stone because it had a little chip in it. I knew like 
diamonds are valued by clarity and, and all that sort of stuff. Well, it wasn't very clear diamond, but anyway, <laughs> it was the best I could get. And so, um, she actually thought that I just like dropped the ball and didn't buy the ring. So she was getting really angry with me and all this sort of stuff. And I was like, whatever. Uh, no. but anyway, <laughs> so, uh, I'll never forget buying that. Now we recently had a ring redone a little bit, but again, don't have the, the, the wallet size to really redo the stone. So we went for, how can we add little stones around it so it looks bigger? <laughs> and so that's what we did. But um, I learned a lot about diamonds. And when I went to rethink about the stone, uh, I started, to, people, I'd show my wife's ring and say, I want to kind of do something special for my wife with this ring. And they look at it and they go, oh, um, you should just get a new stone. <laughs> I'm like, Okay, but this is special because this was the ring I bought for her on her. This is the ring I proposed to her with. Like, yeah, why don't you look at this stone? Well, how much is that stone? I was like, I can't afford that. (laughs) But, you know, when we think about precious things and precious stones and gold, the the new Jerusalem has it in an abundance. In an abundance. It's almost like God is saying, what, you were so worried about that little ring? Look what I got. That's nothing compared to what I have. Now, I I do think that there's some aspect of this chapter as we read it, there's some aspect that John is doing the best he can to describe what he's seen. We call that an anthropomorphic description or term where it's describing it in terms that man would understand because we haven't seen the eternal state. We don't understand the eternal state. But at the same time, there is a literal understanding that we can take from this passage. I mean, for instance, it says that when the angel measured it, he measured it with the same measurement as a man. This is literal. It's meant to be taken literal. Heaven is for real. And it is a literal place that God will create and his dwelling will be with man, like it says here in the scriptures. But a couple things I want to point out to you. Let's look for a minute here at the foundations and and these gates As we see it, we see that, first of all, John is told, I'm going to show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Who is that? Well, that's those of us who are in Christ. This is going to, this is the point at which we see Jew and Christian all one bride. Okay. Remember, we've talked before about this age we call the church age and how God is dealing with the church a certain way and the tribulation, he begins dealing with the Jews again and the millennial reign is really the fulfillment of all those prophecies in the Old Testament to the Jews. We get to be a part of it, but it's clearly fulfillment to the Jews. And then eventually we have the new heavens, the new earth, and Jew and, and Gentile or church alike are joined as one bride. And, and we have this, this coming down from heaven. Do you remember all the illustrations we talked about as we talked about a, a first century wedding? Re- remember that the, the groom would go off and he'd prepare the place for the, for the bride. And the bride would, would wait and not really know when the groom was coming. And all the bridesmaids would wait. And the, there was one groomsman to make sure that the bride was doing cool and keeping track of her. And, uh, and then at some point in time, the groom would arrive and the big herald would go out before it. Hey, everybody, groom's here, middle of the night, whatever the case. And he would take the bride and they'd have a huge wedding celebration, take, it back to, take the bride back to the place he had prepared and the wedding was finalized. Wow, that's exactly what we see here described in scripture. The, the, here it is, 
the new Jerusalem, the place that God has prepared for us. It's a wonderful promise. Wonderful promise. So we, we, we see here that um, as this, bright, this new Jerusalem comes down, uh, coming down out of heaven, I want to remind you that this, this part of the chapter is just getting focused in on the new Jerusalem. Remember earlier last week, we had the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. Now the angel takes John to the mountainside and he actually sees it more clearly. He sees all this coming down. Notice the gates. The gates are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. You know, there's many in the church that um, want to replace Israel completely. They want to say that, no, no, the church is the fulfillment of all the promises and, the, and is the ones who are going to receive all the promises of the Old Testament, and they completely replace Israel. That's called replacement theology. It's also in covenant theology. I disagree with it. Now, if, you're, if you believe in that theology, you know, that's, it doesn't really matter. We can agree on Christ, and we're cool. But I don't agree with it. And, and part of it is, I think God has a special plan and will fulfill every promise he makes. And here we see that the heritage of the Old Testament is important to us. It, it, we see that the 12 tribes, those sons of Israel, that's where it all started from. God called Abraham out of his, of his people, of his land, father's land, and called him to go where he told him to go. And what we find is that it was credited to Abraham as righteousness. That, that's our heritage, for a Christian to pick up the Bible and say, we don't need the Old Testament, all we need is the New Testament, that's, that's your whole heritage. There's, that, that's where the, the, the foundation begins. And so we see the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel inscribed on the gates. By the way, I am doing the sermon kind of fast. I've cut out a lot because we're, we're short on time. So if you, wanna, if you want more detail about this, you can actually find most of the detail. I'm gonna hit the main points. Notice the foundations... And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. There they are, the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Well, why are they so important? Well, can we have a church without the apostles? Could, could we have a church without? We, we know that Jesus Christ is, it, upon this rock, Peter, I will build my church, that confession that Jesus is Lord. But what was the early church devoted to? Do you remember? Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. The early church was devoted to the apostles' teaching. You know, there is a popular trend in this whole quest for the real Jesus or the historical Jesus. There, there is a trend among liberal Christianity that says, well, you know, Jesus taught this, and I like Jesus, but I sure don't like his apostles, or that apostle Paul, I don't like it. You know, he changed the whole gospel. The gospel that Paul preached is different than what Jesus taught. And it's this, it's this desire to get rid of things like sin lists, to say that all sins are okay and welcome and we can do whatever we want. It's a desire to get rid of the hard teachings of Paul, what are hard teachings of Paul? Well, to me, they're not so hard because I understand, I understand the word of God. But when Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach in the congregation, that's not popular today. 
That's not popular at all. In fact, I, I'm sure some of you guys are going, wait, whoa, Dave, what are you doing? I'll never forget my first speech in, in, uh, at, in college, in my speech class. You know, one of the first things you got to take is a speech 101 class. And we got to do a three-minute I believe speech. So I was like, sweet, I know what to do this on. <laughs> so I did a three-minute I believe speech on Jesus Christ and, and that I believed in the gospel. and shared the gospel with my whole class, done in three minutes. Then all of a sudden I started getting questions. Hands started going up. The teacher didn't stop me. He didn't say, okay, let's move on to the next person. He was sitting in the back with the camera, like looking at me, kind of like, what is going on with this guy? And, and uh, I started answering questions. And one of the first questions that came up is, well, doesn't the Bible kind of mistreat women and put them down and, and, and not, not elevate them to an equal status as men? I said, no, that's absolutely not true. That's absolutely not true. In fact, when you look at the the ministry of Jesus, you see women there all along with Jesus. In fact, more than likely, we think that the women that were supporting the ministry, they were the main financial supporters of Jesus's ministry. They were wealthier. One of the reasons why they could afford the perfume to break upon Jesus and anoint him. In fact, when Jesus was there at the home of Mary and Martha and Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet and Martha was busy serving and she comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, come on, would you tell my sister it's not right for her to sit there and she should be helping out? The issue wasn't about serving and listening. The issue was about discipleship. See, disciples sat at the feet of the rabbi and women were not allowed to be disciples in Jesus' day. So when Jesus said to to Martha, no, Martha, you don't understand. Your sister has chosen the good portion. She's sitting at my feet. She can be my disciple. Jesus was taking that culture and turning it upside down. So when when Paul talks about permitting women to teach in church, the issue is not about equality. The issue is about economy. And from day one, we've seen in scripture that even the Trinity itself has an economy. That the, the, the Son submits to the Father and the Spirit submits to the Father and the Son, but all are God. All are completely equal in equality. All share the same attributes. It is an economy that they are different. It is an economy that the Son has considered himself lower and becoming a man, dying for us on that cross. It, that, that's an issue of economy. So with, those, with these sorts of things, we have to recognize that when Paul teaches these things, if you open up your eyes knowing what Jesus taught, you're not so quick to say, well, okay, I'm going to throw out what Paul says. You see, it's on the apostles that the, the church, on their teaching that the church has built, it is through the apostles that the Holy Spirit anointed to write the scriptures. You cannot say, I follow Jesus, but not Paul. You cannot say, I follow Jesus, but not Peter. Or I don't like what James says. You know, Martin Luther wanted to throw, <laughs> throw out the book of James. He didn't like it that much because it talked about that section about faith and works. And he was dealing with the Reformation, and Martin Luther had a huge issue with that. But guess what? Martin Luther is not God, and he does not have authority over that. We cannot throw out the apostles' teaching. I wonder, have you devoted yourself to the apostles' teaching? This is an important question. 
Because it will result in whether or not you are there in this kingdom. Because the apostles taught that Jesus died and rose again on the third day. The apostles taught that repentance leads uh, to salvation in Christ. All these wonderful teachings throughout the scriptures, the apostles' teaching teaches us how we can have this new life even though we don't totally obtain it, how we still sometimes struggle with sin and how we balance it out. The apostles' teaching is essential. In fact, we would say that the apostles' teaching in the scriptures are the very words of God. That's an important idea, church. It's a very important idea to recognize that we're not just picking up a book written by a man. It's not just Paul's philosophy here or Peter's. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. God breathed, as the scriptures say. So I want to encourage you, get to know the apostles' teaching, which is God's teaching. This is the foundation here of the New Jerusalem. I want to point out a couple other things in this passage before we close. Notice that, this, that these gates are made. I mean, we have all these jewels. And you can work out the measurements. Your study Bibles all have the measurements for you, so you can look at that. But notice that the, the one jewel here that the gate is made out of, a pearl, a giant pearl. I mean, it's the biggest pearl ever seen in the history of the world. Well, no, the history of the new world, the new heavens and the new earth. It's a giant, it's a pearl so big that a gate can be made out of it. It's completely impossible for us to fathom a pearl that big. But God's like saying, oh, you want a pearl? Boom, I just created a pearl. What's up? It's like awesome, the power that God has. I'm going to create something so awesome, so wonderful, so beautiful. You can't even imagine it. It's beyond anything you've ever seen before. And you get to be there with me. It's going to be amazing. But I think there's something more interesting about a pearl. The pearl is the only gem that's actually made from flesh. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but a, a, a pearl isn't made just like we don't dig a pearl out of the ground, but rather a pearl is when a grain of sand falls into the clam and, and the clam is irritated by this grain of sand in there and starts create, to create knacker around it. And that knacker is what lines the, the shell of the clam. And it continues creating that knacker around this little grain of sand until eventually you have what we call this jewel, this translucent pearl. (laughs) It's amazing that from an irritation in the flesh, we get something costly, something worthwhile, something priceless. I think it's a wonderful image about what Jesus does in our lives. He takes this marred, (laughs) dirty sinner and makes him new. He, He puts his spirit in me and transforms me to look more like him. It's an awesome image. This pearl being taken from a grain of sand, this irritation. And by the way, I think we are pretty good about irritating God. Not that God is a man like us, but, but that idea that our sin is deserving of judgment. Yet God can take it, crucify it to the cross, and give us new life through it and call us precious, precious in his sight. 
I saw no temple there in the city, for his temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. I think this is interesting that John sees it. Now, from a first century perspective, every town had a temple. It's just one of those things that you would expect to see a temple to some God. And, uh, of course, in in Jerusalem, the temple was the most important thing for them to see. And, And, of course, John has lived through the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, and he says, I see no temple. And, and I, I think Ezekiel tells us that there will be a temple in the millennial reign of Christ. But here, there's no temple. Why? Because God is there, the Almighty and the Lamb. He is, he is the Lord. There's no need for a temple anymore. Remember what the temple represents to the Jew. The temple is the, the ability to worship God. Without the temple... You don't have the conduit to worship God. And of course, we know that the Holy Spirit is indwelled in us, and we have this ability to worship God without a temple made by hands. But here we have God's dwelling with man. There's no need for a sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By the way, it says later that there's no more night. Notice that it says here, by, light, by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. This is an interesting verse. Because you have to ask yourself, wait, wait, nations, kings of the earth, what's going on here? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's an interesting verse. But here's what I will say. The word nations is ethnos. And you can probably hear, hear the English word that comes from it, ethnic. So ethnos, the, word, the, the nations will come into it. Now here's the deal. If you have some prejudices, if, if you have an issue with somebody of another colored skin or an issue with somebody from another culture, you better start practicing losing that. Because when, when we're with the Lord Jesus Christ, the nations will be there. And I know in, in California, it's not as big of a deal. I remember going to Nebraska and they had a whole sermon devoted to reaching across cultural barriers that like, you know, going and, and, and talking to someone with a different skin color. And I was like, what's the big deal? You know, like our church has many different skin colors. It's, what does it matter? But it, of course, in the Midwest, it's a bigger deal. But, but we still do this though, don't we? Somehow every culture tries to set itself up above another culture. And we always refer to it and how we're, our culture is better. My, my daughter has been dealing with this at school. She has a friend who's Hispanic, and the Hispanic friend is always saying, well, that's because you're a white girl, you get to wear that. Or you're a white girl because you get to do that. And I'm trying to teach my daughter that, like, listen, you just love that person as they are. You love them as they are. You don't set yourself above. You don't respond with, with a criticism of their culture or their race. Because the fact is, is we are practicing being kingdom citizens. And kingdom citizens are not looking at race. We're not. We don't belong to, well, okay, I'm white, so I can't really say anything because I'm not even sure where I come from. So, <laughs> like, <laughs> Cherokee, Little Pit, German, yep, you know, I have no idea. Anyway, I'm, I'm just a mutt. But you don't belong to Mexico, You don't belong to Germany or to Ireland. You belong to heaven. I'm not saying that you can't have patriotism, but just recognize where your patriotism needs to stop and your kingdom citizenship begins and takes over. So 
When it comes to culture and race, recognize that when we're with the Lord, the ethnos will be there. Every tongue and tribe and nation, they will bring into the glory, the glory and the honor of the nations. That's the word ethnos again. But nothing unclean will ever enter into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. <laughs> this is the interesting part, isn't it? <laughs> Here's the rub. Here's the verse that we want to just kind of jump past. Like, yeah, I'm in Jesus. I'm I'm there. But what about that part of nothing that is detestable or false will enter into it? Do you have a practice in your life that is detestable or false? The word detestable in the Old Testament is abomination. And it's always used in reference to false idols, it's used in reference to, to worshiping other gods. It's laying yourself and devoting yourself to something other than God. If you're here this morning, Pastor Rod talked about this very thing, and I was like, oh, wow, he's hitting on everything I'm, I'm talking about tonight, but I, he hit it faster. That whole idea of, of devoting yourself to something that is against God. And this is tough. Because we live in a culture and a society that is constantly challenging us, trying to get us to devote our attention, our money, our time to things that are against God. Media, music, TV, movies. How much time do you devote to those things that set themselves up against the knowledge of God? And how quickly are you to just kind of go, okay, well, you know, I'm just going like, to not think about that, you know? It's a challenge, church. It's a real challenge for us. What, what, about, what about things in your household, idols that you bring in? Oh, it's just a decoration. What about compromise within the culture? Are you compromising and saying, I welcome the detestable things or I'm gonna become a champion for those things that are detestable? This is a challenge for you to know the apostles' teaching so that you can honor God. Those things that are detestable or false will not be welcomed there, but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. Interesting, in John chapter 1, if you'll turn there real fast in closing. John chapter 1, in closing. Let's look at verse 6. Or sorry, verse 9. Speaking of Jesus Christ, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It's interesting because, and prior to this, it says the light shined in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it, that men love the darkness rather than the light. Jesus Christ is that light. He is the lamb. He's the one who's got the book of life. In him, we, we get our names written in it. It's only through Jesus Christ. He is that wonderful light. When we think about heaven, it's kind of interesting because we tend to think more about our unsaved loved one and how burdened we are for this unsaved loved one because we, we understand this truth and we want them to come to the Christ and come to Christ and, and have this knowledge and be with us in eternity. But we don't ever think about them and what they want. Have you ever thought about that? When God says, when God judges everyone at the end of time and they 
they're banished and put in the burning lake of sulfur. God is only giving these people what they want. The, the thought and the idea of living within the light of God, where there's no sun or moon, that there's only God's light shining, and, and everything is done God's way, is terrible to them. They hate God. In fact, they'd rather love the darkness and hate the light. God is a completely just God. He won't make someone love him. He's not going to do that. But he certainly will encourage it. And he'll certainly go to great lengths so that you and I can come out of the darkness into the light. But we still have to choose. We have to believe it is true. Just like when we talk about this passage, heaven, we got to believe it. We have a choice whether we actually believe this is true or not. And if we believe it is true, it will cause a whole change in the way we live our lives. It will shake us to the core and the foundation, and we'll start to consider those things that, that we're doing in our life, how we live our lives and say, no, I, I, that's not, that doesn't please God. I don't want to do that anymore. I want to please God and love him. So I want to encourage you. If you have not come into the light, do so. Now is the time. Today is the day of salvation. Do not pass on. Do not either die or the Lord come back. Don't wait on that. Receive the blessing of the light. But also, don't abandon your faith because of a loved one. Don't jump ship. I had a dear friend who, he was a Christian. I thought he was. But he could not come to grips with the idea that his parents would not accept Jesus Christ. So what did he do? He recreated Jesus Christ. He recreated God in his own image. And he said, let's worship this God. Oh, this God's all loving. This God will receive you just as you are. You know the sad part about that is? They have nothing to offer a dying world. Without the light of Jesus, we've got nothing to offer. So I want to encourage you, church, know Jesus Christ in that light. I'll see you in paradise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for this night. And um, God, thank you for your word. Lord, we're so encouraged by it. I can't wait to see this wonderful city. This is going to be awesome. So Lord, help us keep our eyes focused upon you, fixed upon the author and perfecter of our faith. Lord, as we worship now, we just ask for you to bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen.